Hound Podcast. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and welcome to this Horse and Hound Podcast advertising special with Boeringer Ingelheim. Today, we're going to talk about joint disease, which accounts for up to 60% of all lameness cases in horses. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Jessica Kidd, an RCVS and European recognised specialist in equine surgery and consultant surgeon who works with equine practices across the UK. Her areas of expertise are orthopaedic and soft tissue surgery, as well as lameness investigations and imaging. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Horse and Town podcast. Hi, thank you very much for asking me to join you. Very happy to have you here. So as I mentioned a bit earlier, joint disease is something that affects probably more horses than many people realise. Up to 60% of equine lameness can be attributed to joint disease. Isn't that right, Jessica? Yes, certainly lameness and orthopaedic issues are the largest cause of attrition in horses. And it's something that every horse reasonably is going to run into at some point in their lifetime. So it's it's quite a significant issue and it has definite welfare implications as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because not only can it have a, a devastating impact on a horse's career, um, of course, if not treated appropriately, it can then become a welfare issue. And traditionally, we have only been able to effectively treat the signs of joint disease in horses rather than the root cause of the issue. But thanks to scientific developments, options to address the actual disease itself are more widely available in the form of stem cell therapy, which we will talk about a little bit later. Jessica, let's just start off by talking a little bit more about joint disease itself, because I'm sure some of our listeners might be wondering, what do we actually mean when we say joint disease in horses? What is it? Well, I think that's a very good starting point because it's much easier to understand the treatments that vets are recommending if you understand just the underlying mechanics of how a joint works. So in horses, we we have generally two different types of joints. We have what we would term a high motion joint, which just means a joint that has a large range of motion. So examples are the knee, the stifle, the fetlock, the coffin joint. We also have joints that are considered low motion joints. So they function by being very, very stable and not having much motion in them at all, but they can still be problematic from a lameness point of view. And probably the best examples for those are going to be the lower hock joints, so the tarsometatarsal joint and the distal intertarsal joint, and the pastern joints in all four legs. In terms of choosing treatments, that distinction between high motion and low motion is really, is really quite important because different treatments will be applicable. In terms of the high motion joints, in terms of how they're set up, a good way to think about it is the human knee, which anatomically is the equivalent of a horse's stifle. That joint is going to be two opposing surfaces of bone, and they're going to be covered by what's called articular cartilage. So anything articular means relating to the inside of a joint. So if people talk about an intra-articular injection, it means an injection into a joint. So the inside of the joint is very, very smooth cartilage overlying what's called the subchondral bone. And you might have heard of subchondral bone because subchondral bone disease is something that we've been recognizing more and more frequently in horses over probably the last 15 years or so. So that's the inside of a joint. And for these joints to work properly, the articular cartilage 
needs to be as smooth as possible so that it's it's almost a frictionless glide. So think about a perfectly smooth pond of ice or um, a piece of glass. If it's that smooth, it's not going to have a lot of friction in it and it's going to glide smoothly. The problem if the surface becomes unlevel is that it's not going to glide smoothly and they're going to be portions of the joint that are then exposed to more trauma because they're projecting into the joint more than they should. So that's that's the inside of the joint, but that's actually only part of the part of the puzzle really because there are other structures out with the joint which often get overlooked. And these are we've got the the joint capsule which surrounds the the interior of the joint. We have synovial fluid, so we have joint fluid inside the joint. And again, that lubricating fluid is to help with this this frictionless gliding of the cartilage surfaces. And then out with the joint, we're going to have the outside of the joint capsule, which actually is quite fibrous in many cases, meaning it's it's sort of the consistency of scar tissue. And this is really important when we come around to thinking about chronic joint disease, because over time, if joint disease is left unaddressed or is progressing despite treatment, what you can have is you can have an increase in the amount of, of fibrous tissue surrounding the joint. And then, of course, that means you've got a joint that can't bend as it should. And then that's going to be an issue as well. And then the other things that we have s- supporting the, the joints are we're going to have collateral ligaments and, and in some cases tendons that run over the joint. But it's important to look at a synovial joint, meaning ones that have this synovial fluid in them, as an entity rather than just the inside of the joint. So in addition to the cartilage and the subchondral bone, we have the synovial fluid and the joint capsule and the lining of the joint and all the external supporting structures. And so it's all of these that we need to take into consideration when we're trying to not only diagnose lameness, but when we're trying to come up with an appropriate treatment modality for these horses. Okay, so there's an awful lot that goes into that goes into a joint, an awful lot of structures, as you say. Jessica, a lot of people will will obviously know the word arthritis and 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 have heard of that in horses. How does that fit in regarding joint disease? That's an excellent question. So if you think about joint disease in in horses as a as a continuum, so there's something which starts it off, whether that's athletic pursuits, whether that's some sort of irregularity in the joint. And then it, pre- then it continues through the phases of, of joint disease where the first thing is, is inflammation. The end stage, regardless of what the inciting cause was, is going to be arthritis. And that is where we have or we thought we had irreversible changes in the joint. This is what we now have more scope to treat. But the other important thing to say about arthritis is that the whole aim of the game in, in terms of equine joint disease is to catch things early enough that it doesn't get to that end stage of arthritis. Because again, reasonably, the more severe the condition and the longer it's been going on, the harder it is to treat. And so when a horse does have joint disease, is that usually uh, a combination of several of those structures that, that are not working quite as they should together? Or is it sometimes one particular element that, that the problem exists within? So generally there's some inciting cause, but as time goes by and as the condition becomes more chronic, 
more and more of the structures pertaining to a joint will become involved. So one of the more common ways that that joint disease can develop in horses, there are probably two main uh, pathways. One is that there is some sort of injury to the inside of that joint. So, so a, a classic example would just be a chip fracture in a joint. And what this means is you then have this incongruity in the joint surface. So uh, again, the joint can function normally if it has perfectly smooth gliding surfaces. So if we then have a little fracture in there, it's not going to be perfectly smooth. And, and again, another analogy is, is with these little, with fractures inside joints is it's like walking around with a rock in your shoe. It's really not comfortable. And the rock is going to start tearing up the rest of the joint and doing even more damage. So there are lots of starting points for joint disease. So uh, a fracture is one for sure. Um, a developmental problem like OCD, again, that's going to give us not a smooth joint surface. And so then that's going to perpetuate the disease. And there are lots of other examples, but the other main bracket is what's probably best described as just wear and tear on joints. And so this is not just the realm of athletic horses. It's, it can be the realm of any horses, but it's probably fair to say that athletic horses are going to be more predisposed to wear and tear forms of, of joint disease. Okay. And so what are the, the signs that owners and riders should be keeping an eye out for? So the, the, the real hallmarks of lameness in horses, these joint disease is, a, is an inflammatory set of conditions. And so if we go back to the classic signs of inflammation, which are heat, pain, swelling, redness, that's a little bit hard to tell in horses, of course, because they generally, not many of them have white skin. But the pain and swelling, that's really crucial. So these are horses. The first thing that you're going to see is a lameness, although sometimes that's quite subtle and it gets put more down as the horse is just not performing properly. But again, if we're talking about these high motion joints, one of the reactions of a joint that has become inflamed is as the joint, be, as the inflammation takes hold, the lining of the joint produces more of the fluid that, that normally is in the joint but you get an excessive amount of it. And so when we talk about a horse having a joint effusion, that means that there's more synovial fluid in that joint than would be considered normal. That needs to be distinguished between just a swollen joint, which can be the structures outside the joint. But a joint effusion in, in one that's, that's quite obvious, it, it just looks like a bubble of fluid under the joint capsule. So those are going to be the very first two things that you're going to see. And then as time goes on, there may be other issues such as a decrease in the range of motion. So, so if we take a knee as an example in a horse, the, the range of motion and how far that horse can actually flex its knee, either before it just stops or before the horse shows you that that's painful to it. Okay, thank you for that. I think a lot of people will find that interesting. And as it is so common among sport horses, clearly it doesn't have to be career-ending. But what sort of an effect can we expect joint disease to have on a horse's future soundness? It certainly doesn't need to be career-ending. There are ones that are refractory to treatment, and despite everybody's best efforts, we can't get the horse sound again. But the majority of them, there's definitely there are definitely treatments that that 
we have available that can be very effective in these in these horses. I think what we'll come on to this a bit when we talk about stem cells, but the traditional definition of of an arthritic joint in a horse was that it was a progressive and non-reversible condition. And what that means is that really the earlier you catch these things, the earlier you will be in the in the uh, how far advanced the disease is. So in other words, it's much easier to to treat an inflamed joint that's only been there for two weeks than one that's been there for two years. So it certainly doesn't have to be career-ending, but but probably what the biggest factor is how long the inflammation in the joint has been there and are there any underlying causes, again, this the rock in the shoe analogy. Okay, so I think very, very reassuring that joint disease does not have to be career ending. But like you say, the most important thing is is to be able to pick it up early on and actually get that diagnosis so that you can treat it accordingly. And speaking of diagnosis, please, can you just talk our listeners through that process? I think a lot of people might be familiar with the idea of a horse being sent for a lameness workup, but is that the first step? What about imaging and, and scans? What place do they play in the in the diagnosis of joint disease? I'm really glad you asked about this because this is so, so very important. There's some pitfalls into which it's very, very easy to fall. So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up. So the, the first step is that someone has identified that there is something that's amiss with the horse. So that doesn't necessarily need to be a horse that's on three legs. It can be, and I always say to owners, presenting a horse to your vet because you just have the feeling that something's not quite right is always, always valid. Because one of two things is going to happen. The vet is either going to say, ah, you're right. Yes, there is, for example, a mild left forelimb lameness. Let's look into it. Or the vet's going to say, no, I don't see anything. Um, and now you can you can continue on and not worry that you're going to be, there's something that's being missed that you're going to make worse. So the first step is that the horse just has to be has to be presented because no matter how good a vet is, if, if the horse isn't presented to them in the first place, there's nothing that we can do. And, and there probably is a degree of, of individuality in terms of how vets will go about this. But the, the basic framework is, and, and this is often overlooked, but the history from the owner is critical. And I usually just ask owners to start at the beginning, talk me through, and the owners will often make maybe just even one comment that gives you a little flag to say, ah, okay, I need to bear in mind what the owner has said here. Because reasonably as the vets, the person who spends the most time with these horses are the owners. So it's really important to listen to them. And there, there may be things that they tell you which are inconsequential, but if you don't take the time to listen to them, what you will miss is the consequential information that they're going to give you. And it's also very important, I think, to just set a, a groundwork for what questions are we trying to answer? So in other words, what is this owner particularly concerned about? And it may be that in the process of looking at the lame horse, other things come up which you would suggest be addressed. But I guess it's a bit like going to your to your GP. You want your GP to listen to you, to what your concerns are, about you or your child or your grandmother or whomever. So the history is is incredibly important. And there's no doubt about it. Getting a good history is quite time consuming, but in terms of the value that you get out of it, it's really worthwhile. 
The next thing that that needs to happen is the horse needs to have a a physical exam and then an orthopedic exam because it's very easy, particularly if you have a very lame horse, to simply focus in immediately on the leg that's very lame and not remember that there's a horse attached to that leg and there might be other compounding issues. So a physical exam and then an orthopedic exam. And an orthopedic exam, after palpating all of the limbs, flexion tests are a very individual thing. I personally rarely do flexion tests because they they just don't seem to to help me enormously. And there are there are definitely horses who have a positive response to a flexion test that are not do not have an orthopedic explanation for it. So so they're very widely used and in some people's hands they may find them use, useful, but I really don't do them very often because they can mislead you as well. They can give you a, a false positive or a false negative. But what you want to see is you want to see the horse being trotted up in hand, ideally on a firm level surface. And what's ideal, what works on paper is not always practical in real life, but, but basically a straight trot up on as smooth a surface as possible. And, and you want to look at the horse trotting towards you, trotting away from you, and trotting from the side is also very useful in terms of just looking at the movement of the limbs and the the flight of the limbs and how well the horse is tracking up. And all of this has to be gauged in the context of what it's actually safe to do in these horses. So for instance, if you have a really fresh horse that has shoes on all four feet and you you have a small area of concrete on which to lunge it, you have to make the judgment call whether it's actually safe to do that. But so in an ideal world, we would then, after looking at the horse in hand, look at the horse on the hard lunge, because the hard lunge is going to be the hardest thing orthopedically for this horse. So a horse that's sound trotting in circles to the left and to the right is reasonably quite a sound horse. But it's also then very good to look at them on a soft surface, because Lunging them on a soft surface is the setting under which we can look for, well, we can, we can ask the horses to canter. So this is where we're able to look at more dynamic signs in these horses and, and sort of out with this discussion. But if we're thinking about horses with, say, back or pelvic problems, they often don't show us an overt lameness. What they show us is an inability to do certain dynamic moves like flexibility of their back and that sort of thing. So Lunging the horses on a soft surface is very useful. And then in an ideal world, but it's not available all the time, is a ridden assessment of the horse, assuming that it's safe to do so. And the advantage to a ridden assessment is that reasonably most orthopedic problems, they're going to look a bit worse when someone is on the horse, which makes sense because it's, a, it's just more strain on the horse. But I think the other real advantage to a ridden assessment is you then actually are getting two viewpoints out of it. You're getting the viewpoint of the observer from the ground. That would be me. But what I can't tell from the ground is the information that the rider is getting from that horse. And so it just means that two heads are, are greater than one. So that's the advantage there. In the majority of cases, where you're going to go next is you're going to try to localize the lameness. Now, there are going to be some cases where, as an example, the horse is... is severely lame. So actually, you're not going to trot it around on a hard surface. You're probably going to take it in and do some survey radiographs and just make sure that nothing is broken before you continue on. In some horses, there's a very, very clear 
anatomical area with which to start. So say, for instance, um, a force that has a massive stifle effusion. Well, what we don't want to do in a lameness evaluation is make anything worse. We want to make a diagnosis with a view to making the horse better. And there are some circumstances where actually moving the horse around excessively is probably, until we know what's going on, is probably not a good idea. But in, in, in the majority of lamenesses, what you're going to, to do is try to localize the lameness first and then move on to imaging, such as radiographs and ultrasound. And really the gold standard for diagnosing a lameness in my eyes is to what we call blocking these horses out, which is that if we can put some local anesthetic somewhere in that leg and we can significantly affect that lameness, that it really is the gold standard for, for pinpointing the lameness. Because, and a good example is hocks. So the lower hock joints, very common cause of hind limb lameness, very common cause of bilateral hind limb lameness. But you can have a horse that has horrendous looking x-rays of its hocks and the hocks are not the problem. Conversely, you can have horses with completely clean hawk x-rays and yet the hawks are the source of the pain. So one pitfall that it's very easy to fall into is making a diagnosis based on x-rays and perhaps oversimplifying it, but short of an overt fracture or probably an OCD lesion, there is not a lot that you can definitively make a diagnosis on an x-ray. So that's where the blocks are really, really important. And, and also, just from an efficiency point of view and a cost efficiency point of view, it's a much more streamlined approach to, as an example, a horse blocks to a hind fetlock joint. That means you're not going to spend time and money x-raying and ultrasounding everything else on the leg looking for something because you've already figured out where it is. And so then once ideally, and we can't block out every horse because some lamenesses don't block out, although that's not very common. And some horses just are not amenable to multiple blocks. And, and that's fine. I, I don't think I'd be very happy if someone tried to stick needles into my joints and I'm amazed that they tolerate it as well as they do. But if we can get a diagnosis and a, just a localization, then we would go to imaging. And then if radiographs and ultrasound don't tell us everything that we need to know, we now do have more advanced options such as things like scintigraphy, MRI and CT. Gosh, that's absolutely fascinating and really, really interesting to hear about how all those different diagnostic processes work together and, and you know, you can't just rely on, on one thing. Clearly, there's so much, there's so much detail, there's so much complexity, so much skill that goes into that diagnosis. I think one question some of our listeners might have is that you mentioned uh, a horse being ridden as part of a, a lameness assessment. Would that be uh, somebody at the at the vets? Would that be the rider, the owner, or who who would actually ride the horse for that? Generally, it would be the, the. I think the ideal person is the person who knows the horse the best and is the one who has raised the concerns in the first place. But there are horses where they may, an owner may perhaps ask someone who they feel is, is perhaps a stronger rider, which does not mean a more forceful rider, 
because really good riders can can in some circumstances make lame horses look better than they are. It just means someone perhaps a little bit more confidence and more experience. So sometimes is someone who who works at the clinic or the hospital, but there are then specific insurance considerations related to that. Mm, of course. So moving on to talking about the treatment options for joint disease. We mentioned earlier in the podcast that one of the more widely available treatments now is stem cell therapy. And we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that. But traditionally, the treatment that I think people might be more familiar with is steroid injections. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And and steroid injections, the reason one of the reasons that they're used so frequently is because they work in the in the vast majority of horses and they are among the most cost effective so while i clinically use most products that are available to us now in one form or another far and away the most common treatment that i would use for joints is corticosteroids but they do come with some caveats and one which I think ties into the concept of, of a lameness investigation, is that it's really stacking the odds in the horse's favor that the horse is going to get better if you actually know where the lameness is coming from. And so occasionally there are cases in which speculative joint medication for one reason or another is attempted, but you have to explain to the owner, this is just a best guess because I, I don't have a and it may be that that's what the owner adamantly wants, or it may be that it's a horse that you can't get blocks into because really blocks need to be done without the horse being sedated, if at all possible, because the sedation then skews your assessment. And there's some horses where they're just unwilling to have that done. So, so again, it's not an ivory tower approach that every horse must have a specific diagnosis, but, but the advantage to having a specific diagnosis is you really are stacking the odds in your favor that you're going to have a successful outcome. So I'm I'm just not really in favor of speculatively medicating horses' joints. And the other issue is that corticosteroids are the most, they're really the most potent anti-inflammatory that we have, and that's why we're using them. Corticosteroids and some of the other joint medications that we can use they're not going to fix anything that's structurally wrong in the joint. So again, if you have a chip in the joint, the chip is still going to be there. The corticosteroids, it wouldn't be appropriate to use them if you have a chip in a joint. But just as, as an example, corticosteroids, what they will do is they will temporarily alleviate those signs of inflammation within the joint and the pain that's relating, that's causing the lameness. But they won't fix anything that is is structurally damaged. And the other downside, and, and this goes back to this distinction between high motion joints and low motion joints. So the low motion joints, if they either, because we're attempting to do it or it just happens naturally, if those joints fuse together, so this is the small hawk joints in the pasterns, that actually is a, is a successful outcome because once that little bit of micro motion is taken away, then in most cases, the pain that that micromotion is causing will also resolve. But that's fine because horses can very easily live without those joint spaces. What they can't live without are the high motion joints. And so 
those joints function by being have these have these large gliding surfaces and this large range of motion. And so we need to think very carefully that the treatment that we're using in these high motion joints is not in any way going to harm the joint in the longer term, because then effectively all we're doing is patching things up in the short term and potentially damaging the joint in the longer term. Okay, that's that's really, really interesting, especially as you say, steroid injections working very well to alleviate the pain, but not actually fixing the, the source of the disease itself. And what about surgery? How how does surgery fit into the, the bigger picture of, of joint disease and, and, and its treatments? If we start with the the horse that we've localized the lameness to a particular joint, which which needs to be our ideal starting point. You basically have you have three treatment options for for any case. You have surgical, medical, and then what we would call conservative, which is not ideal because that's effectively doing nothing. So the majority of cases will fall into the medical treatment bracket. But there are some cases in which surgery would be recommended in the first instance. And again, this ties back into this concept of structural issues within the joint. So in other words, a chip in the joint, um, an OCD lesion in the joint, some sort of soft tissue injury within the joint. And those are ones where, again, it, it, unless you address that structural problem, anything that you add in afterwards is not going to be particularly successful. Now, again, that is going to be the minority of, of joint diseases. And there also is, while surgery definitely has it has its realm of treating the issues. It often is overlooked that it also is an excellent diagnostic technique as well, because there are, of course, with advanced imaging, such as MRIs or a CT, we can get more information about the, the joint and its surrounding tissues. But there are times where actually putting the small camera in the joint tells us what's actually going on. In terms of arthritic joints, those generally are horses that surgery isn't recommended very frequently because by the time we've gotten to an overtly arthritic joint, surgery is really, it's, it can be unsatisfactory because it's more of a, a tidy up. It's improving the situation, but it's not definitively addressing it. So generally, arthritic joints, unless, again, unless a fragment has broken off, are something where surgery wouldn't be recommended in the first instance. But if you just remember medical, surgical, or conservative, those are the three options. Okay, that's great to know. Thank you. It sounds as though vets are keen to try to move away from the idea of steroids being the default option when it comes to treatment. And of course, this is where stem cell therapy comes in. The science around stem cell therapy, I know, has advanced considerably over the past few years, and it's been rigorously tested for both safety and efficacy in treating joint disease. But Jessica, I think it's fair to say a lot of people don't have very much understanding at all of what stem cells are, what stem cell therapy actually is. So can you please give us a breakdown of the basics? Absolutely. This is a really exciting field and it's just, it's a blossoming topic in the veterinary sense. It was led by human stem cell investigations and technologies and and as vets, we're hoping to harness some of the, the capabilities. 
So stem cells in their, in their basic form mean a type of cell that has the ability to develop into a number of different cell types. So as an example, a stem cell potentially could become a muscle cell or it could become a ligament or a tendon cell, a tenocyte. It could become a chondrocyte, which is cartilage. And the whole idea behind stem cell technology from a medical point of view is to harness these abilities of these stem cells to be able to effect a repair or or a regeneration of tissue. And what really, really sets stem cell therapy apart from everything else from a horse's point of view that we can put in a horse's joint is stem cells, to me, I, I explain it to owners that I feel that stem cells are the most elegant solution that is there because instead of just trying to patch things up or dampen down the inflammation or just improve the environment in the joint and, and make it a bit more healthy and a bit less inflamed, what we're trying to do with, with stem cells is we are actually trying to effect a structural repair. And this is, this is grossly oversimplifying it, but I often explain it to owners, not that owners need things grossly oversimplified, I should say that, but, but the, the phrase that I use with respect to using stem cells in joints is that what we're hoping to achieve is to be able to resurface the joint. So Again, if we go back to the thought of how these, how joints are set up anatomically and how they function with the form that they have, in other words, these very smooth gliding surfaces, the, the bone that is beneath the cartilage, which is called subchondral bone, it's supposed to stay there. So if subchondral bone appears in a joint, it means that the cartilage over the top has been lost. And again, we then have a joint that is not going to is not going to glide smoothly. So what stem cells are trying to do is stem cells are trying to help replace that lost cartilage. And we just don't have anything else that can do that. Now, the technology or the understanding behind stem cells and how they work, um, initially it was thought that stem cells were put into a joint or a tendon or a ligament and it was those stem cells that then made themselves into the, the tissue required. So in other words, you put stem cells in a tendon and then those stem cells became tendon cells, or you put them in a joint and they became cartilage. Actually, that thinking is, is probably not followed so much anymore. It seems more that what stem cells do is they don't stay in a joint particularly for a particularly long time, and, and I believe it's on the order of days, so it's not terribly long. But what it is, is it's, it's messages that those stem cells take with them. So one way to think about it is the stem cell that is put into the joint, because we're talking about joints here, so let's use that as our example. The stem cells that are, are injected into the joint, think of those like the general of the army. And the general of the army goes and addresses all of the troops and motivates the troops to do what the general is asking. So the general is the stem cell, and the stem cell is not actually going to do the work itself. What it's going to do is it's going to send the message to the local cells, in other words, the foot soldiers, that it would be 
very beneficial to make some new cartilage and cover over this subchondral bone that has been exposed. And and again, that is probably oversimplifying it, but that's potentially uh, that's about as complicated as I can get on stem cell biology myself. So again, the advantage to, to using stem cells in horses is, again, it is a very elegant solution. It's trying to effect a repair rather than just remove inflammation in the joint. Now, my feeling on on stem cells, and I do recommend them now after every arthroscopic surgery I do, because invariably there's going to be cartilage loss there. But my feeling, and I stand to be corrected, but my feeling is that if there is a significant structural issue there, that needs to be dealt with before the stem cells, because as an example, if you have a large OCD lesion in a stifle, I don't think that stem cells, they can't sort out that structural OCD lesion. That needs to be addressed surgically. And then the stem cells come in and try to, if possible, bring the joint back to as much of its pristine condition as it should actually have. So this ties in, I think, quite nicely to when I said earlier that that traditionally our definition of joint disease in horses and in humans was that it was it was a chronic, progressive, irreversible condition. Yes, that's true, but stem cells throw something else into the mix, which is that actually it may still be progressive, but we've now got the ability to reverse things, which we don't have any other way. And so again, this is many treatments for joints are are damage limitation and trying to limit the amount of ongoing damage. Whereas with stem cells, it was described to me as turning back the clock, which I think is a really a really good way to think about it. Wow. I mean, I feel as though I and all of our listeners have learned so much um, already. And I really enjoy your analogy with the with the general and the foot soldiers. I think that actually explains it really, really well in terms of what stem cells actually do once they're administered. And and actually on that point, I wanted to just check, how are they administered? Is it is it inje- an injection into the joint? That's a, that's a very good question. And there are a number of, um, there are a number of ways that stem cells can can be prepared. So the traditional and and the gold standard was what are called bone marrow derived stem cells. The downside to that is is it's labor intensive because you have to collect bone marrow from the horse that is going to only that horse can use those stem cells. So so generally that involves collecting bone marrow in a standing horse either from the sternum or from a portion of their hip which is is not without risk and it adds to the expense. And then those that bone marrow then gets sent off, it's cultured in the lab, and then it comes back three to four weeks later. And then you have this nerve wracking moment where you take out this tiny little vial that is extremely expensive and you try not to drop it on the floor. Um, and then those, the purified stem cells that have been grown in the lab, they come back and are then injected into um, tendons were really the first thing that they were used for. Now, you can get stem cells out of out of fat. You can get them out of umbilical cord. The problem with those is that they just don't seem to be, they don't have the quality that you do from bone marrow. So the advantage is that it's easier to, to, to collect fat than it is to collect bone marrow. But 
the results just weren't as good. And now there are stem cell products that are available that don't require collection of the bone marrow. And, and it's actually, it's quite a, it's quite a leap forward because up until recently, the only horse that could use a particular preparation of stem cells was the horse that provided the bone marrow. But there are ways now that stem cells that are created from another horse are available to put into a different horse. And that's really quite a departure. And that's a, it's quite a milestone actually, because it means now it's a question of making, placing an order for stem cells rather than collecting bone marrow from a horse and the ensuing weight and the ensuing cost. So there are, there are a number of preparations available for horses, but the bottom line is when it comes back and you have those stem cells in that little vial, they are then, if we're talking about joints, they are then injected into the joint in exactly the same manner that you would inject steroids or local anesthetic or any of the other preparations that you have. So it's actually not necessary to harvest stem cells from, from the horse itself then? Yes, there are now uh, licensed veterinary products available which are produced under laboratory circumstances, which means that they're very rigorously controlled and allow the very relevant studies that come out of them to be published, which gives vets the, the reassurance to use these products and to recommend them. And it also means reasonably that fewer horses need to have a bone marrow collection. That's, that's really, really good to know. Um, so clearly owners should be considering talking to their vet about uh, the possibility of using stem cell therapy rather than just uh, relying on, on steroid injections as a go-to because, as you said, the stem cells actually give you the option to turn back the clock rather than just stop the clock on joint disease. And have there been clinical trials showing the effects of stem cell therapy on sport horses with, with joint disease? Yes, there have. And, and actually very well, well carried out scientific studies. So as, as vets recommending these products, we are actually recommending them from a point of, uh, from a position of scientific strength, if you like. I think the only thing that is off-putting at the moment about steroid um, about stem cells and it it's it's a consideration it's not a deciding factor but they are relative to other preparations that we can put in joints they are still really quite expensive they're probably very reasonably priced if you think about the technology and the knowledge and the research that's gone into them and the innate advantages of repair rather than just patching things up but at the moment as i say i, I would I would at least mention them to every owner of every horse that that I do joint surgery on because I, I think it's it's important that they have that option and that they know about it. And then if they want to discuss it further, then we, we discuss it from there. But again, also looping back to this idea of high motion and low motion joints, really the the high motion joint it's is more of an anatomical description to sort of cement this concept that we need these almost frictionless gliding, smooth gliding surfaces. But the stem cells can also be for sure used in these low motion joints because again, those joints, even though they don't have much motion in them, the basic setup is the same, which is 
two opposing joint surfaces that are covered with articular cartilage and then have the bone underneath them. So I don't want to give the impression that stem cells are not applicable for use in, say, the small hop joints or the pasterns, because they certainly are. Interesting. Really, really interesting. Of course, as as horse owners and horse lovers, we all want to do the best by our horses. Uh, but most of us do have financial constraints too. And it's interesting how, how you're talking about that, that higher cost. But of course, sometimes the cheaper option doesn't offer the most value, especially if the problem is is then more likely to reoccur later down the line. So when it comes to, to elite competition horses, they're they're more likely to be receiving maybe regular regular checkups and tune-ups by by team vets throughout the season. But most amateur competitors or those competing on or maybe a national level probably don't have that option and and it sounds as though they would really benefit from something that has longer lasting positive effects like stem cell therapy which can ultimately give them more time to enjoy their horse it seems well exactly and if you t- if you take that if you take that argument a little bit forward um those people who as you say are not under the care of of team vets they potentially are doing better by their horse's joints by taking a slightly longer term view on things. And because repeated joint medications with corticosteroids at a certain point will catch up with some of these horses. So I, I, I think that that's a, a very valid point. Another thing to say about stem cells in contrast with, as an example, corticosteroid injections, corticosteroid injections, they start to work really quite quickly, as in within days. Stem cell treatment, again, you're looking at a slightly longer game plan here. And those those are on the order of weeks to perhaps a month or two before you're really getting the effect from them. So that does tie into considerations, particularly for people that are, say, mid-competition season and and need something that will take effect sooner. That's really, really good to know. I think we've all learned an awful lot today about about stem cell therapy. And the the overriding message is definitely that to owners, riders, if your horse has been diagnosed with joint disease, speak to your vet. Don't wait for them to suggest it. The dialogue between you and your vet should be a two-way street. So start the conversation, ask them whether stem cell therapy might be right for your horse. And Jessica, if our listeners want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where can they go to do that? Probably the easiest thing is I have a fairly basic website, which is just uh, www.kidvet.com. There is a contact form on there, so, so questions can reach me very easily. So just to recap, that's kidvet.com, K-I-D-D-V-E-T.com. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on the Horse and Hound podcast advertising special with Boehringer Ingelheim today. I think we've all learned a lot and hopefully inspired owners out there to investigate stem cell therapy as an option to prolong their horses' active lives. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. 